0: Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where host Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate
1: portfolio.
2: Welcome back to another episode of the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. My name is Nick Hill, joined today and every Tuesday and Friday by Mr. Daniel Foch. And today we are talking about Vancouver's some of Vancouver's new policy that will change the real estate and the development landscape in the lower mainland.
0: Yeah, and we've been talking about these policies. We forecasted a lot of these policies coming in, and we've been advising listeners to watch what's happening in some of the areas that are most impacted by the housing crisis as sort of canaries in the coal mine are leading indicators on what we think could happen from a policy perspective coast to coast. Seems to be taking place. I'm actually pretty happy that pol- policymakers must have been looking, listening to this podcast and responding <laughs> promptly to our requests. But uh, but honestly, I mean, it's interesting to see. And uh, we aren't just talking about it, just you and I, because, you know, I mean, you left Vancouver a long time ago, <sighs> like the traitor that yes. you are. Oh, come on. And so we brought in the big guns and we're going to have a guest today. Yeah. One of our few guest episodes.
2: And, and this guy's special, a... Self-described real estate aficionado, a uh, is that va- how you say it? I I don't know. I'm trying to put a little cool. Trying to put a little something on it. A Vancouver realtor, real estate and finance blogger. And this I like this part of his bio. Washed up hockey player and coffee connoisseur.
0: Classic Canadian. The washed up hockey player is just <laughs> classic Canadian realtor thing to do, right? Yeah sounds like a top producer, must be the cold plunge type of guy. Well, he is a producer. Uh, I'm not sure about the cold plunges, but yeah, looks the type. His name
2: is Steve Soretsky. He's got over 35,000 followers on YouTube. Uh, I think similar following on Twitter where he puts out a ton of great content. He's a realtor, a real estate commentator, a small cap developer, an investor, and a fellow podcast host, Dan, over at the... Uh, Looney Hour, which is a podcast focused on kind of
0: macroeconomics um, and, and how they affect the Canadian market. Yeah, and we were uh, lucky enough to have Steve grace us with his presence on the show, which I'm happy about because this guy knows his stuff. And uh, anyway, let's let's just get into it. We got an interview here with Steve about what's going on in the Vancouver policy world. Mr. Steve Suretsky. can I call you
2: Steve or do you prefer Mr. Soretsky?
1: Well, buddy, you know what? You can call me whatever you want, buddy.
2: (laughs) Mister Vancouver Real Estate, then King of Kitsilano is what I prefer. Okay, King. Oh, that's good. You know, I got buddies. uh, That's
1: that's Keith Keith Dicker in the Looney Hours comments to me. So,
2: so if you don't know Steve Soretsky, the King of Kitsilano, my 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 friends at my own property in Cornwall, Ontario, my friends call me the King of Cornwall. Uh, (laughs) I'd much rather be the King of Kitsilano. It's a a little nicer of an area of the country, but yeah, I appreciate you coming on the show today, man. I feel like this has been a long time coming. Dan and I are 151 episodes in and you're finally gracing us with your your presence here.
1: Yeah. I don't know what took so long. I guess I had to buy you guys dinner
0: to get me on, eh? No, we, we've been jockeying for that third or fourth spot on the podcast charts for a while now. And now that you've been beating us for a couple of weeks in a row, we're like, I guess we got to get Steve on to try and boost our uh, viewership yeah, that, or something like
1: that. That, that is fair, man. Competition's tight these days. It's the reverse. If you can't beat them, join him. It's like if we can't beat you, we're going to make you join us. Yeah, buddy. That's <laughs> uh, you can't beat him, them, join. Them. That's why everyone's becoming realtors, and everyone's got podcasts, right? Yeah, and TikToks.
2: <laughs> on that note, I know we got a lot to uh, chat about today. So, Steve, obviously, you're you're an expert in in real estate and, and macro, and a commentator on on both. But you you are based in Vancouver, my home town. Um, And uh you know that market quite well. And there's been a lot of new things, new legislation, new changes in policy, and that'll probably spark a lot of other changes over the coming years. But before we get into those, because that's what we're here to talk about today, specifically the upzoning stuff. Can you kind of give us, I know you talk to developers, homeowners, investors, you name it. Can you kind of give us a 30,000 foot Look at what the Vancouver market is doing right now, kind of the pros, the cons, the challenges,
1: yeah, thirty thousand feet. I mean, I'll say this like you know, first off, it's we're definitely not having the same sort of drawdown that looks like the gta is it's It's definitely a soft market here. You know, I think we're seeing more softness in the suburbs, um. Where mm-hmm. prices obviously ran up quite a bit, we've have pockets of the market that have been flat. Like you know, Vancouver inner city where I live, like you know, Kitsilano, right? I mean, that's market. That market's been flat for like five or six years, which is like prime prime real estate. But it's just it just really hasn't moved a whole lot even during the pandemic. So you know, those pockets of the market that I think are more ripe to to corrections and whatnot. Um, what we're seeing is you know softness in the land market. You know, over the last 18 months, prices are adjusting. I'm sure we're going to get into that more because of the, a lot of these changes that I think are going to impact that as well. But overall, like it's still a market that's just, there's not still a lot of supply. You know, we've had a lot of homeowners holding off on inventory as stuff that's lingered on the market here in the fall. And now we're into December. We're seeing sellers now pulling all their stuff off and they're going to try again in the spring. So prices have been really sticky. I mean, we're really not like, we're down maybe maybe 10%. Mm-hmm. So it's just been a really slow market though, just not a lot of not a lot of things moving, not a lot happening, but overall inventory is still really low and and prices have been quite sticky.
2: Yeah, I mean is and I guess that that that's across the board from especially when you're looking at the the kind of small and, and mid cap developers that could be increasing that that supply.
1: Yeah, I think uh, you know the development community is definitely in, in a tough spot. I mean, I think the num- the numbers in Vancouver. Someone once told me this, and I can't actually v- validate the, but it sounds right. Uh, if it's, it came from a, s- a source that I trust, that said Vancouver developers have some of the lowest margins in North America. And I would, wow. I mean, I've looked at a lot of these performas and some of these land buys, and it's like, how is anyone making money off of this? But I think the play for a lot of these guys. Particularly like the newer entrance, like, you know, a lot of like, it's called what it is. A lot of Chinese money that's come here looking for opportunities over the last, you know, 10 plus years has been like buy land, land bank, you know, you overpay for the land, but you just sit on the land. Every year, bank of real estate goes up 10% a year, refinance, you know, acquire new dirt. And you're just you're just land banking. You just you're yeah. just levered up, and you're refining. And obviously, you know what we've seen over the last twenty four months, right? Is like prices stopped going up; they started going down. Interest rates surged, and so the ability to refi for for some of these guys is where you're running into issues. And I, I think there's there's more bodies that will float to the surface over the next twenty four months.
0: I think Vancouver is an interesting one too, because like the call in commission came out and obviously acknowledged the the massive scale of money laundering and its role, especially in the Vancouver market. And it's like, well, it's tough because it almost introduces an irrational consumer, right? And um, well, it doesn't, doesn't almost, it literally does. Like these are people who are buying and selling or transacting real estate, developing real estate that have really no incentive to actually make a return. All they really want to do is be able to to launder money, right? And so the bigger the project, and it, it's not to say that, you know, all developers there are doing that, not at all, but There ought to be some based on that report, so you start seeing that scale, and that's where I think markets like Vancouver and Toronto, where you can, where else are you going to find places where you can launder billions of dollars at a time? Really, right?
1: Yeah, I mean that's that's a tough one because I I mean I can't quantify the numbers. I just know like you know hockey bags of cash walking through casinos. I think it's there's obvious red flags that you know we know it's happening. I I don't know. I can't comment on the extent of of how pervasive it is, but I what I can say is like, Vancouver, whether you're a developer or you're like an end user, is not a local market. I mean, just not. And like, there's this notion that I know like people wanted to go back to like the good old days, which is like, oh, it's going to realign with like local incomes. I just this is not going to happen. I mean, it's you have so much like global capital that just floods into here and it it does distort. And the reality is is like now we've got like, you know, foreign buyer taxes, speculation taxes. You've now got a foreign buyer ban and like there's like the, the values are still holding relatively yeah. and, and it's it's like because I, I look at it and say like a lot of like the foreign money that's here is actually like a lot of the times is there are already permanent residents. They're Canadian citizens or their kid goes to university here. So it's like the money is here like quote-unquote legally and so it's just part of the immigration system that you know like i grew up in richmond bc right so if anyone's familiar with richmond bc i think the population i believe is like 60 or 70 percent asian now so it's just like a mecca right it's just like and then you look at that city and it's like there's lots of mega mansions it's a lot of you know house uh i don't know what they call what do they call themselves like how like you look on title it's like caretaker or like Got it. housewife. Like it's right. like, well, this is a $4 million house.
2: I could be a caretaker for, for that. That's yeah. not bad.
1: So like I said, I mean like the money is here and the reality is, is like when you have these foreign buyer taxes that look at your passport and, or the foreign buyer ban that's federal now, it's like, well, they're already PRs. Like they're, yeah. they're here. So the, these, the, they don't get captured by these, these taxes basically. Right. So the money's here just sloshing around. Yeah and mm-hmm. I think when you examine
0: like the down like you mentioned the drawdown hasn't been as severe in Vancouver and and I'm not as familiar in, as the market as you are but when we had um, Chip Wilson on here when when we were out in, in Vancouver and saw you there, he was talking about you know how he likes the market because it's literally s- supply constrained and I think we don't really have that in Toronto like we like to think it's supply constrained but it's not really like but in Vancouver you actually have a, a you know, there's a, a kind of a ring around it on the land scarcity basis. And so that has probably helped drive or or floor the market a little bit when when compared to like, you know, everyone's like, oh, the Manhattanization of Toronto. It's like you guys do understand Manhattan's an island, right? So anyway, I, I guess I'll use that to segue to the policy side because it's like. And this is what we wanted to talk about because you did a great summary of the changes that happened in BC and how the province had introduced a legislation that estimates it could provide up to 100,000 new homes near designated transit areas over the next decade. So can you give us like a high level on sort of what's what's changing out there? Because um, it seems like all of these governments now are trying to race to who gets to put the policy in first, who gets control of the whole thing or credit maybe if if we end up actually seeing supply come on.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think these are like the biggest changes in the history of like British Columbia in terms of like housing policy. So basically, the BC government, like, so David Eby got in. I've had many conversations with him over the years. I think he's well intentioned. Again, people might agree or disagree with his policies or politics. It's kind of irrelevant. The point is, like, the changes are happening, which is this is a guy that got in to power, I think, 16 years after the Liberal government was in power. And he he got in basically said, I'm going to fix the housing market. And and so he's taken bold changes to, to, to radically change zoning policy in British Columbia. So basically what they've done is they've eliminated single-family zoning across the entire province of BC. So like any single-family lot in BC, if there's a population greater than 5,000 in that sort of area or in that municipality, you can build... A duplex, I think it's minimum three units. So you could have, like, I think the way the policy reads is like, if you have a 2,800 square foot single family lot, which is really small, you can build three units on there legally. So he's basically stripped the municipalities of zoning. So he's saying, I think it was by June of 2024 that the municipalities have to update their bylaws to accommodate these changes. And so you know, like I'm here in the city of Vancouver, our standard lot size is 4,000 square feet. So on that 4,000 square foot lot, you can build a minimum of four. Yeah, I believe it's four units on that. And from what I'm reading, I'm waiting for some of the the details to come out, but it, it looks to me, and I'm trying to get this quantified. It looks like to me, like they're mandating a 1.5 FSR. Okay. Minimum. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which would be huge, right? right? Yeah. So. Again, people that are listening to this, like it doesn't mean you cannot build single family houses. It just means you can't disallow or restrict people from building three units or four units. And then if you've got a lot size that's larger than... I'm drawing a blank here, but that's,
2: that's okay, Steve. Why don't, why don't I go through? Because yeah, you, you did a it. really good job at at summarizing this on on Twitter, and and uh, there was a 95 page policy report that the BC government put out, and you read each one of those pages meticulously. I'm I sure I did.
1: It was uh, it was nighttime reading. Nice reading. I was
2: going to say toilet <laughs> toilet reading, but <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of toilet time. We won't get into that. Um, yeah, I don't want to talk about it. So yeah, here's Steve's points from uh, from Twitter I bet X, I guess now. So if you don't follow Steve uh, on Twitter, go go do yourself a favor and check him out there. Municipalities have until June thirtieth, twenty twenty four, to update their zoning bylaws, which you just mentioned, Steve. All single family zoning must allow one secondary suite and or an ADU, an accessory dwelling unit. All single family zoning must allow minimum three units on lot sizes of 3,000 square feet or less, which is fascinating because I was just about before we hopped on, I was about to Google average lot size in, in the lower mainland. And at 4,000, you know, all of this stuff is applies everywhere, which is, which is great. A minimum of four units on lots larger than 3,000 square feet. A minimum of six units if within 400 meters of a bus stop and a lot larger than 3,025 square feet. Stop me if you want to comment on any of these. Yeah, so I mean, basically,
1: do- like I said, if you're in the city of Vancouver here, so if you've got your standard law, which is 4,000 square feet, and you're within range of that bus stop, um, you could technically put six units on there, which, again, I don't know how you cram six units on a 4,000 square foot lot. That will be very interesting. Uh, I'm sure we can kind of banter on that, but that's... So I mean, my commentary is basically is like just because it's legally allowed, it doesn't mean that you should build it. Yeah, so yes, from yes, <laughs> from like a developer builder's perspective, it's more like you're gonna have to figure out what product market fit is and figure out where the demand and how the numbers are gonna pencil. Because like I said, I don't I don't think, you know, selling six one bedroom units at five hundred and eighty square feet or whatever it's gonna be. I don't know what kind of market that there is for that. I don't know.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, the next the next point here might might answer that question at least at least a little bit, which is a minimum of a three story building height. So when you're when you're dealing with a lot size that of that small of a footprint, right? I mean, four thousand square feet isn't small if you're living in a one bedroom condo in Toronto or Vancouver. I can tell you that. But when you're looking at the building restrictions that a lot of that size allows, there's really only one way to go, and that's and that's up, right? And and is that. You know, six stories with with two bedroom units on on each, or you know, how does that how does that look?
0: Yeah, the mo- I think the likely outcome from my perspective, when you when you look at that question, and if Steve's talking about them using a one point five FSR, is like if they wanted to have more of a neighborhood feel, you're not going to go above fifty percent lot coverage ratio, and li- likely so you still have a bit of a back uh, background, so you're not football. Yeah, of the I think building. it was
1: fifty percent lot coverage. I think you're correct.
0: Yeah. So 50%, which is so 50% of your three thousand square foot lot, that's a fifteen hundred square foot floor plate. And then that's big, right? And then you go up three stories. And now that you guys have the single staircase as well, which is another new addition that was made.
1: I think they're still they're looking working on that single it, yeah. staircase. Yeah. But I think that I mean I wouldn't be surprised if that becomes policy and yeah. 12 months.
0: Can, can you guys explain explain that just for, well, for our listeners yeah so egress, i guess yeah so well right now at, uh canadian building code you have to have two staircases uh, and for those of you who remember the episode that we did with uh conrad from rehousing uh conrad speckert who he's pretty much the biggest proponent i would say about of single staircase so right now in canada for buildings over two stories you have to have three uh, two staircases a, a regular one and then a fire exit and it's expensive to do And, uh, and so it complicates the design of, of the the unit as well. Yeah. So you could get some of these, like some of these buildings could be like a, like, you know, let's just actually engineer this from just, just for the thought experiment. So 3000 square foot lot, 1500 square foot floor plate, you have a staircase in the middle and you have a 700 square foot unit on either side. And you go up three stories that gives you your 1.5 FSR uh, floor space ratio because you're taking 50% multiplying it by three and now you're 150%. So your square footage of your building is 150% of the square footage of your lot. That's your 1.5. And now you've got six units in a three-story walk-up format. I mean, like... And that that is congruent with a lot of the housing supply that we see in, at least in Toronto. Some of the... Like when you go to the junction, you see those old buildings uh i think vancouver's got less of them probably than toronto but you know you go over to montreal you see a lot of that stuff so i don't know do you do you see if, Steve, just based on you know your your finger on consumer sentiment in the in the market there is that something that would be absorbed
1: the the the, the walk-up yeah like and
0: if and either as a rental I, or a condo for yeah i like,
1: think so i think it would be i i'd have to double and again i'm not like I haven't read the entire like BC Building Code, so I couldn't tell you. Because like I know there's some changes that are happening there. I know they're always like, well, is it wheelchair accessible? So I don't really know how that would work. You know, so again, I think there might be t- making some tweaks to that. I know they're talking about tweaking bathrooms; so they're more wheelchair accessible. Like I, it's like there's so many changes happening. It's hard to sort of quantify. But the big to sort of summarize, it, I think Rabbi Kalan, who is the BC Housing Minister who was appointed by David E. B, the premier, is I think that he's got things pretty dialed in. I think he's got I think he's got quite a bit of consultation on all of this. I think he understands what needs to be done. And I think that's why they're making the speed uh of these changes. So yeah, I, I think they'll figure it out.
2: Yeah, I guess, and that that's a great segue to kind of the next question here. And again, Steve, this this question kind of stemmed from a from a tweet I I, I pulled from you, but also um, just something I'm curious about because we're seeing a lot of this with with uh, with MLI select projects across the country. So, in Vancouver, development land on a value on a dollar per buildable square foot basis have been in steady decline over the last 18 months and the introduction of an unprecedented amount of density now in the transit oriented areas of the city. Right. So those ulterior roads close to the subway lines, the Skytrain out in, in beautiful British Columbia, that will put further downward pressure on that dollar per square foot land price in the short term. Can you explain that? And then, and I'm not going to ask two questions. We just had a a user chirp us for asking more than one question, but I have a follow-up question after that. So let's talk about that.
1: Yeah, that tweets from Dave Taylor at Collier's. He's a big land broker here. So uh, give him a shout out there. But, uh, you know, I think that's, that's, you know, so land values have been declining, obviously interest rates going up, development performers don't pencil. So land values are naturally slowly adjusting. The thing with like, this massive upzoning. So not like the single family stuff where you can do, you know, triplex, fourplex, sixplex, but like the the high density now that's been mandated around SkyTrain stations. Uh, you know, you're within 800 meters of a SkyTrain station. The city has to allow a minimum of eight story buildings. So what you've done is basically like Vancouver, right? It's to Chip Wilson's point is like, it's a land scarcity market, right? You've got mm. these geographical constraints. And so the way the developers have made money over the last... 20 30 plus years has basically been like buy land sit through a very painful rezoning process you know deal with all the politics and the bs that goes along with that which could take you 3 3 plus years to redo maybe even in a lot of cases longer than that and then once you rezone like these you know four single family houses into you know a 12 story condo building you get this landlift And that's how you make your money, right? So like that's how you made money as a developer. But now you've just opened up the floodgates and says, there's all this land now that can be hypothetically redeveloped. It it has to be zoned, zoned already for it. You don't have to go through all the headache of of dealing with this, the the politics of getting something rezoned. And so as a developer, you now have a lot of options. Like you've got you can kind of just pick, like, well, what site do I want to develop? Like, what's going to be easiest for me? And so I think moving forward, the way to be making money for these developers is actually going to be changing, which is like, can you build and can you manage your construction costs? Can you execute on construction? Like, that's that's that, that's the new squeeze. And so that's going to, like, I think that's going to change um, a lot of things for some of these guys. It's, it's like you actually have to be a good developer now yeah. To, to, yeah. to make money developing. That's, it used to just be like, hold the land,
2: buy the land. Who's, yeah. Who's got the who's got the bag to buy it and hold it, um, stay in power. But now it's like, can you execute a good project? Totally.
1: So that's, and so again, like I said, I look at it and say, well, like if you had a site before that was, you know, a bunch of single family houses and you were, were you know able to convince the city to sort of rezone it into townhouses? It's like, yeah, but now up the street the guy can buy these same single families and build you know twenty story tower because it's zoned for that. So it's like, like I said, the developers have option. I think you remove some of that scarcity, and so I actually think in the near term, I think the changes that the government introduced is actually going to put pressure, yeah, on 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 development land prices.
2: So. The follow up question I had to that one is, okay. so we're seeing a lot of these changes for the bigger developers, right, that have been land banking for, for years or decades or whatever. But we're also seeing now an opportunity for the smaller cap developers to, you know, go buy those single family homes or turn the single family home that you owned or the duplex that you owned into that. You know, fourplex or sixplex, or put the ADU in the back. Do you how like what do you what do you think the adoption is going to be like for for both the small and mid cap developers, and then and then some of the big boys that are that are all facing these these changing policies, um,
1: all all quite quickly as well. I mean, I definitely think it opens up the door for the small guys. You know, it, it definitely does because we literally we legitimately did have that missing middle, right? It was like you yeah, either built custom single family houses for three and a half million dollars, or you built like apartment buildings. There was no in between. And so now that you've, again, you start doing duplexes and fourplexes, uh, you will open up that market. It's definitely don't think it's a market for like mom and pop to, to be playing in. It, I think it's, it still requires a lot of capital because, you know, you're, you're building at, you know, hard cause you're gonna be 300 bucks a square foot, you know, it, it, probably at least uh, in, in the city of Vancouver. So it's still not cheap to build, you know, four units, but I do think it's, it opens up the door and it gives people other options, right? So instead of having to buy a one bedroom and a high rise, it's like, well, maybe you can go buy you know, a one bedroom ground oriented dwelling unit or a two bedroom. So I, I definitely think it's just going to, I think it's going to open up the supply taps, but I don't think it's going to have the immediate impact that everybody thinks it is going to have.
0: Yeah. I think the uh, the unit economics of Construction need to improve before, like you need to see construction costs be deflationary before, like the numbers do- still don't work. And we, in, in most urban areas, I mean, you are seeing purpose built rental housing starts increase in a lot of markets, just not your Toronto and Vancouver. And it's because the land costs are just so high because there's some somebody else willing to pay more to use it for a different purpose than than what a developer. Someone is. with a
2: hockey bag full of money. Yeah. And and <laughs> until,
0: Yeah. And so I think until that changes, I don't know if you'll necessarily see it. I think to me though, it does show and and we've talked about this a lot on the podcast, just how we think, you know, eventually everywhere in Canada or most places in Canada will all be up uh, at this point. Cause I think they were just, they, they waited so long to solve the housing crisis and now they're playing catch up. Yeah. And yeah, that, that blog uh, that came out, I think called. you just said, here comes the kitchen sink or whatever. And it's clear, like that's what they're doing. They're literally just trying to catch up here with policy. I don't know what, what the outcome will be, but I think it is interesting and just maybe we'd love to get your take on it as well. Do you see this creating opportunity? Like, you know, when you say for, for small investors, most of our audience would be smaller investors who are buying these infill sites and you know ma- making an effort to um to convert them to multiplexes build a sixplex whatever it is and we've been saying for a long time i really think this is the coming opportunity fortunately we were right right i was like everything everything's going to be upzoned in a year and and i was you know and and it actually happened so are you seeing any th- any of those happen any of those opportunities actually pencil in your market yet um And if not, like how far do you got to drive to find one?
1: <laughs> I think the numbers are still tight. I think you brought up a good point, which is like, again, just because we chatted about earlier, but just because you can build it doesn't mean you should. So, yeah. you know, like multiplex in like Vancouver's West side, like Nick, like in point gray, like just because you can build four units <laughs> in point gray doesn't mean that you should build four units because highest and best use is still a brand new $6 million house. Six million. Come on. That's cheap, man. Yeah. Okay. More like eight. (laughs) Yeah. That's, that's the best use. Right. So like those numbers are just probably never going to pencil, but I think, I mean, that would be, that would be, I feel
2: like very geographic market specific, right? Like no one's going to go buy a a plot of land in the bridal path here, which would be our really our, maybe our, one of our only comparable, maybe Rosedale Forest Hill kind of thing and and go put a, a four unit building there, right? I mean one the
0: NIMBYism would would explode and uh <laughs> you don't think and you and could two, charge a premium for living in a fourplex beside Drake? Yeah. <laughs> hey, maybe maybe I don't know. But
2: I, I doubt it. This is what I'm getting at. So so yeah, I mean I think outside of those those essentially ridiculous pockets of, of land that we see in both of these places, do you see it like creeping into you know, like Kits, for instance, I feel like Kits would, Kits would adopt do well. something like that, right? Like,
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kits, Kits will do well. It's already like, it's got a vast array of like various density and, and demographics and stuff. So I think Kits, Kits is where I think you'll see uptake, you know, east side of Vancouver. I think some of these suburban markets, you'll see it because um, the, the numbers work and you can pencil it. It makes sense. You got, you know, especially in the suburbs, you got some bigger parcels of land. So uh, I think it makes sense in a lot of the areas. I think we'll see it like, so like, you know, in Vancouver, we've got, Tons of duplexes have been popping up over the last three, four years because the city of Vancouver brought in a zoning change a number of years ago. And so we've seen a really large adoption of, of duplexes, and there's tons of demand for that. So again, I think with the density bonuses that the BC government's brought in, like those duplexes will probably turn into triplexes, yeah. um, maybe even fourplexes in a lot of cases. And so I think that there's there's a demand for that. Now again, the numbers are still razor thin like i think it's it's going to be on like what's your competitive advantage and so it's like if you are like a builder by trade and this is what you do you can really manage your costs and you've got access to really good trades at reasonable at reasonable rates i think you can make the numbers work but i think for most people like if you're just like hey i'm i'm just you know a guy and i you know i'm an accountant by day but i'm going to go buy a piece of land and i'm going to hire a builder and pay them a 15% GC fee. Like I I don't, the numbers aren't going to work for you, I'm afraid. So, yeah.
2: it, I, sorry, Dan, I was just going to say everyone's, everyone's got their day job and then developer by night, right? <laughs> Which is probably not the way it should go.
1: Yeah. It's yeah, definitely not a part-time gig. Yeah. I think it's going to be tough because like, you know, I think there's, like I said, builders out there that can, can build for a lot less than you or I can hire out, yeah. I think, I think you're seeing
0: a, a bit of a advantage being carved out on the capital side as well with the CMHC stuff. Like that's, I don't even want to say improving the margins. Cause if you just say, okay, like the develop, like say the project margins, if you were just to build it to sell, like they would be the exact same, but the margins or like the, the tightness of margins gets taken and spread out over 50 years on that 50 year M of the CMHC MLI select program. And, and on a 50-year AM, you can cash flow pretty much anything. And, and all they care about in their underwriting is if you can cash flow so if you're at a one point one to one point three debt service coverage ratio, and we know this because Nick and, and the team at Land Bank do a bunch of financing on the MLI Select stuff, then basically like a four and a half to five cap, which is what you're building at in Toronto now on a four four or five unit six unit building, those are fitting in that that debt service coverage, and, and not not downtown obviously, but like you know we have a, a client who's who's doing some awesome work in uh, what's that area Leslieville uh, Riverdale Nick I don't, I don't yeah, like where yeah, yeah. Riverdale he's yeah. gonna come on the show and, and talk about it a little bit. So I'm curious to see if, if it actually ends up having an impact on kind of that five plus unit. Cause MLI select only applies yep. for five plus. Right. And maybe you just end up skipping that whole Like there ends up being like a sub missing middle where no, there's no credit because pro- it really is just a function of credit now. Right. It's like, everyone's like, oh, multifamily's is ripping. I'm like, well, why wouldn't it be when there's a perfect credit product for multifamily still? like You can buy it at the best credit terms in the country other than industrial, owner-occupied industrial, which you can get BDC. You're getting cheapest rate, highest loan to value, M's that you can't get on anything other than that product. I think that that, that market is real. It's just, is it an investment? <laughs> this is the big question. Is it an investment or is it just you're building something for your like your kids, because you're you're literally on a fifty year am, like your principal's barely going down, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think like I don't think rental would be built, period, in Vancouver unless you didn't have the CMHC MLI there, MLI select. You're right. I mean, you're building what, 95% loan to cost, 50 year AMs, 10 year debt, dirt cheap. Like that's that's on the numbers pencil. And so I, I yeah, I think to your point, I mean, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, that gets into time horizons and what what why you're investing and what you're like why are you holding this asset, right? I mean I talked to some families in 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 Vancouver here, you know, and you know, extremely wealthy families. And they own, like they just went out and bought like an apartment building on the east side, you know, 1970s construction. I was like, huh. I was like, I was like, when did you buy that? And he's like, oh, you know, it was like a th- like a three and a half cap. I'm like, huh. Like I was like, does that does that seem like a good play to you? Like what's your plan on that? He's like, no, we just <laughs> we just buy a hold. We're just sitting on it. We're just looking to protect our wealth over time. And we feel yeah. that, you know, this three story building, uh, on the East side, eventually will get rezoned for, you know, 10 story, 20 story, 30 story. And, and so it's covered you know, land play. Yeah. It's just a covered land plan. That's just how they look at it. It's like, you know, they, that's their time horizon is kind of indefinite. And they just look at Vancouver as a geographically constrained market that, yeah. uh, you know, has a lot going for it. So, yeah I mean wealth it really
2: comes down to wealth preservation versus wealth creation right yeah. they're They're very, very different yeah. things. I mean, going back to the interview with chip Wilson, right? he was talking about his his real estate portfolio in a hundred years. and i'm trying to figure out how to make money in the next two years (laughs) you know (laughs) like next six months would be nice but uh you know i mean we we all know real estate is is a is a long-term play but when you're buying something with with millions worth millions of dollars that doesn't produce as much money as like a you know your most standard basic gic or something like that there's a very very small market of people who can essentially get away with 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 doing something like that
1: Yeah. I think that's, that's the difference. Right. And like, you'll see like most builders, I think that are going to do these multiplexes. They're going to be guys that are trying to make money today. Right. It's like, I'm going to build it, sell it, get in, get out, and move that cash to the next project and just keep recycling. So they're, you know, again, they're playing a different game than, you know, one of your listeners that says, Hey, I just want to buy a single family unit or a single family house, tear it down and build six units and finance that with 50 year debt through CMHC and have it as a long-term rental play. Like it's a very different mindset. Yeah. I guess the people who are doing
2: that would be, you know, the, and I know the takeout rules have now changed as well. I think you've got to wait two years with a certain, um, Correct me if I'm wrong here, Dan, but two years with like a CMHC approved lender before you can before you can do a takeout. So the takeout rules have changed. If you're going to be trying to, well, they're trying know, to apply slow the down the, method. Yeah, they're trying to yeah, slow down
0: tra- the like the uh, yeah the people get in just and using get out. It, yeah, as a prediction. exactly
2: price, right. right? Yeah. As as they should. Um, I mean, look, it's still a great still a great product. I think it's still going to have a, a meaningful impact over the next several years on the on the housing crisis, especially in both of our prospective markets. So, Steve, I, I know we've only got a couple more minutes here. I did want to ask you one more question about a another one of your legendary tweets here um, regarding everyone's favorite thing in Canada, tax bills. Um, so so uh, the BC government mandated for higher density across the province. Missed in all of this is the massive tax bill about to hit homeowners. Property taxes are based off the highest and best use of the land. Can you explain that? Because that, I mean, that that we're already taxed like crazy here. I mean, and we don't need to go into the politics behind it. But what what did you mean by that? And how do you think that'll affect the the average person in in Vancouver with these new changes in legislation?
1: Yeah, no, it's a good point. I mean, just to kind of context it, I like the tweet was never about like the equitable taxation and what's right or what's wrong. The Yimby crowd was, you know, jumping down my throat. And uh, I think, you know, those people, some of them are just insufferable, but um, (laughs) basically how it works is so, you know, and, you know, for the listeners that are maybe in Ontario, aren't familiar with our tax system is every year the BC assessment, or, you know, basically they're an arm of the BC government. So the BC assessment authority, assesses the value of your land and your home every single year in in the summer and think it's in July of every year. And so their rules state that they assess you based on highest and best use. So if you own a single family house that is now within 300 meters, let's say of a sky train station and you can build, you know, I don't know, 12 story condos, is they're going to assess your land based on, well, what's the land worth now? Like if it was a single family house, that was its best use, but now its best use is basically a mid-rise condo building. The land value has to change. And so basically is your property taxes, which are set on a mill rate, they're going to adjust. So you're going to end up paying a larger, larger portion of your tax bill if you're, again, if you get that up zone. Now, I would argue that seems it's going to strike a lot of people. It's going to catch a lot of people off guard. So there's people who are going to be like, oh, I can't afford this tax bill. I got to move, you know, at the same time, it's like, well, Hey, you know, you did get a free land lift from the BC government. So like, should you pay more property taxes? I would argue, yes, that seems fair. Yeah. But I, the point being was just that I think there's going to be a lot of homeowners that cut off guard. I so wonder,
0: the- I wonder if the lift will actually be as high as, as you would anticipate though, because like, I, I understand the value, the the tangible value would go up, but Because assessment is revenue neutral, like it takes the whole pie of the municipality and then they like, it would really only go down relative to, or sorry, go up relative to. And if there's so many that have gone up in value, then like, it's really just like,
1: yeah, I see what you're saying. You're taking the whole
0: pie and the whole pie of the city's uh, property value just grew by X amount because of that. yeah, And then- so if anything, like it actually gives the big developers who are already paying those higher things, a, a, a relative break compared to homeowners, which is, which is funny, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, taxes. certainly. Exactly. And I, I think like, you know, the people that are going to end up like paying less as a percentage, right. Would be like the people that didn't get any density bonus, right. Like maybe you're an already an existing condo yeah. and like, you know, yeah, you'll, you'll probably save a bit on your tax bill than you normally would have. Yeah. So yeah, we'll wait and see. It's funny though. Cause I had people like chiming in and being like, yeah, but like if I'm one of those people that didn't get the free up zone lift, like I'll oh, based on my mill rate, like my property taxes will go down. I was like, well, Show they me the last... slightly, it'd be marginal, but yeah, they, taxes don't, you're right. Taxes don't go down. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was like, show me the last time your property tax below went down. I'll wait. I mean, so the city of Vancouver, for example, before all these changes came into play, they were saying that for the next four years or five years, they said, we will see a 9% annual increase in property taxes per annum for the next year, four years. So like- On the rate or on the assessment? Like that, that's what they- On the using. overall like portion of what you'd pay. Yeah. Okay.
0: So they're increasing the rate. Yeah.
1: I mean, that's pretty substantial. It's basically a 10% increase per year. Dude, we've had
0: um, municipalities in the GTA threaten increases of 100% because uh, if they got their DCs taken away, right? By the province. And that's why. So like the province here did something very similar to what you're describing. It happened in BC, but uh, with the Ontario Bill 23, it was going to be two units plus one. I mean, technically you can already do that here, um, but they were going to mandate it. And similar policy to what happened in BC, but Part of that Bill 23 was also that they were going to stop allowing municipalities to collect development charges. And um, all the governments were like, Yeah, here's what here's what our taxes would need to increase if we had to, if we got rid of that part of our budget. And some of them were literally like 90,
1: 100%. That's what their tax rate would have to increase by. Crazy. Yeah, it's a, it's a constant, constant uh, battle, I think, just between all the various levels of government trying to. Trying to get this through, but I think we're actually making progress for for the first time in many, many years. So, do you think that, that
0: give, fast forward ten years, do you think it, all of this has a net positive impact, or you think it's it'll all be done in vain? I mean, like I think it's you can't you can't really outpace the, the population growth, really, right?
1: I okay, yeah. Time, I mean, Steve. Yeah, no, I think that's a good question. I love this question actually because it gets the Yambies all fired up. <laughs> I believe that, like especially the multiplex stuff. I think is going to be really good. I think over the next 10 10 to 15 years I think you'll see. But what I think I think what you see is like instead of house prices going up let's say 10% a year it's like maybe they only go up 4 or 5%. Yeah. Like but like the reality is it's like I laugh when these CMHC reports come out and say you need to build like 3 million units by 2030 and it's like okay they say that because they said if you get to the 3 million units like prices will have come down by like 20% or something like that and it's like show me a developer show me private money capital that is going to invest capital in a market where prices are actively declining every year yeah you're and, not going to get and they would be they would be the ones actively declining it, right? Because right. they're investing in it. Yeah. yeah. Well, I can't wait to build. When I'm done this project, prices will be down another 10%. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. like, you know, it's, it's like yeah. people don't live in reality. I mean, like I said, even if you're a developer, I mean, at the end of the day, it's like you're typically relying on bank financing, right? So as a developer, it's like, oh, well, I want to build a 20 story high rise, but if I can't sell 65% of the building, you know, I I can't put a shovel in, even in the ground before the bank will give me money. So it's like, and the bank ain't going to give you money if they're, you know, if they see prices are actively declining. Yeah, for sure. So yeah,
2: I think that's probably a good place to uh, to call it. Um, Steve, really appreciate all your uh, your insights on on all this stuff. I'd love to keep chatting, but you've got a interview to get to, or a YouTube video to make, or some some real estate to go sell. I'm sure. For all our listeners that don't already follow you or listen to you. Where can people find more about you?
1: Yeah, just add Steve Stretz. He's super active on Twitter. Um I also write like a well YouTube, Substack. Um those are probably like the three main things I'd point people to. Not you're not pointing to uh TikTok where you point to other stuff. You know what, man? I haven't actually got on there. I saw you just crushing it and I said I can't compete with that. So <laughs> I just bowed <laughs> out.
0: Yeah, it's good, man. It's of all of the places where the audience is the most savage, TikTok is it, man. It's oh, just, I love uh, it, it's uh, imagine private. like the anonymity of, of Twitter, I almost said Tinder, Twitter and, uh, and YouTube, but they're all teenagers.
1: Yeah. Some very sophisticated real <laughs> estate people on there. Oh
0: man. They're so smart. They all know way more than me. It's crazy. So anyway, <laughs> careful on that one. You, you made the right decision. Love it. Awesome. Thanks so much, Steve. Thanks for having me on. What a beauty that guy knows a thing or two about real estate, I'd say. Yeah.
2: You, you know what? It, it'll it be fascinating to see how it how it all plays out over over the next few years, both in, in kind of the leading markets in Toronto and in Vancouver and the
0: surrounding markets, you know, the Burnaby's, Richmond's, Hamilton's. There's going to be a lot of change. Yeah. I kind of have this idea that like municipalities will start competing with one another for investment and for growth and for population. Like I think that a lot can be done at the municipal level to, you know, create com- local competitiveness, development charges, how much, you know, what their building code standards are going to be like, what number of units they'll allow you to put on a lot. And because population growth is really de- driving almost everything here, it is the underlying factor. How different municipalities respond to that could really change, the, it could ch- completely change the, the entire outcome of what happens over the next little bit. So anyway... Um, You know, we're going to talk about this a hundred more times, so we won't belabor it now. Um, But before we wrap up, I guess, check out the course.
2: Yeah, check out the course. uh, If you're listening to this when it's coming out, Christmas is literally in a few days. So happy holidays to everybody. Probably too late to get a Christmas sweater now, but uh, there are other great pieces of clothing on there check out the course. We are opening up a different module with uh, with a different offering for much more focused on kind of beginners. So if you didn't feel like you were ready for the the big course with and the big ticket and the like, big I mean, ticket exactly yeah there's a there's a much smaller barrier to entry course full of value probably I don't know Dan what do you think fifteen hours worth of worth of stuff yeah in about there. fifteen hours yeah yeah and if you have any questions about that or honestly any questions about anything else reach out to the show the emails in the notes we love hearing from our audience and write us a review as well if you haven't done that already thanks so much for listening everybody hope you got a ton of value out of today's episode we'll talk to you soon. The Canadian real estate investor podcast is for entertainment purposes only and it is not financial advice. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with premier mortgage center and a partner in the G and H mortgage group license number one zero three one seven agent license M two one zero zero four zero three seven.
0: Daniel Foch is a real estate broker licensed with rare real estate, a member of the Canadian Real Estate Association, the Toronto Real Estate Board, and the Ontario Real Estate Association.